Well, we can turn back to the chapter we read there, uh, Ruth chapter 4. And I would just like us to look at this chapter as a whole, um, in which there's a happy ending. Of course, the end of the chapter does ask where the happy ending is and when it's going to happen. But anyway, I'd like us to think about this chapter. Redemption accomplished. As we've seen in previous chapters, um, the custom in Israel for somebody who was a widow was for a relative to um, marry her if she had no children and to, um, in order to keep the inheritance within the family. Because otherwise they would lose the land if there was no one to pass it on to. Uh, Naomi, uh, she had a field, but wasn't much use to her in her old age. And unless someone would come and uh, marry Ruth, Ruth the stranger, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the lady that belonged to the people that God had said, there shall be no Moabite in the worship of God for 10 generations. I don't know if you looked at the genealogy at the end of the chapter, but it's 10 generations. So whether that actually means anything, I don't know. But um, here's Ruth, and she's going to become uh, a member of the people of Israel. She had already made that aspiration known, hadn't she, when she left Moab and said to uh, her mother-in-law, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Now, of course, it's all very well for Ruth to say that. But what do the people think of it? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, we always usually just see things from Ruth's point of view. And she wants Naomi's people to be her people. But what if the people don't want that to happen? I mean, that's going to be a dilemma, isn't it? So anyway, Boaz, he is a close relative, but he's not the only relative. There's one closer to Elimelech than him, and Elimelech is Naomi's late husband, and um, he has to find out if this closer relative is willing to redeem Naomi and her land. So he goes up to the city gate, and that's where the town council met. That just happens in the ancient world. And usually any time when the word gates are said, it's referring to the decision makers. And that's an interesting thing to realize when Jesus said about his church, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Sometimes we imagine that the gates of hell, he's talking about a, a wall with gates on it to stop um, people getting out or in. But if by gates he's referring to the, the decision makers, then he's, he's not saying that he will build his church and all the attempts of the enemy to hinder the progress will not have any success at all. So it's good for us to know that. But anyway, 
going back to the gates of Bethlehem, Boaz goes there, and I suppose we're meant to try and imagine what he was thinking. I mean, what kind of man is the other redeemer? Is he looking to enlarge his territory? Or is he somebody that doesn't care less? I mean, Boaz doesn't know. And of course, that's a reminder to us, isn't it, that sometimes the things we want most in life, everything's always uncertain. We can be desiring something to happen and nobody can come up and say to us, it's definitely going to happen. And even if somebody does say that to us, we know it's wishful thinking. So here's Boaz and he's coming to the city council basically and he waits for this other man to pass by and he stops him and the people are watching, looking on and, um, and he tells them there in verse 3 that Naomi has this bit of land and I'm just wondering if you are going to redeem it. The man doesn't know why Boaz is asking this question. But anyway, Boaz asks it and he can, or can almost realize it. His entire future depends on what this man is going to say. And what does the man say there in verse what does he say to encourage Boaz? Boaz wants him to buy. Boaz doesn't want him to buy the land. And what the man says to him is, "I will redeem it." Imagine Boaz when that happened to him. It looks as if the crunch moment has arrived. And the door is slammed shut in his face. What do we do in that situation? Accept the door is shut. Well, that's not what Boaz does. He comes in with his um, further piece of information there and points out Whoever takes the possessions of Naomi has also in that ancient, ancient society uh, got to take Ruth, the Moabite, and um, become responsible <coughs> for producing an heir that will be the one who will get part of the inheritance that belongs to Elimelech. And right away, this man, at least, well, you can, at least this is one thing you can say about this man, he doesn't dither. I mean, he, to the first part of Boaz's comment, he says immediately, I will redeem it. And then to this um, second um, statement about the other additional aspect of things that you'll have to marry Ruth, he just says, I can't do it. Because if I do that, I will redeem my inheritance. I'll, I'll impair my inheritance. I mean, the normal explanation that is given for this is, is this man's a widower. And, <clears throat> and he already has children by, uh, by his previous, um, previous wife. But if he now remarries, now if he, he marries Ruth, there are going to be likely children and they're going to take away from his inheritance. He'll not be able to pass it on to the children he already has. Whoever Ruth will have, these, they will share his inheritance. They will mar, impair 
what he's got planned for his future. That's a very different um, outlook from just getting the field that Naomi has. And therefore, because he cannot take it on without reducing what his own, his current children are going to get, he just says, I can't redeem it. And I'm sure Boaz was delighted when he heard that. Because he goes on to say that he would redeem her. Now, does this not tell us that when the real crunch comes, God can solve things instantaneously? Right up until the final moment, there's one door getting shut after another. There's not even any of them half open. They're just getting shut one after the other until the last one. And when the last one is reached, it's wide open. I suppose the question that comes to us as we face providence Do we trust the God of the last minute? Or do we prefer a God who does things minute by minute? I mean, we never discover anything until the last minute. Is that not true? We just don't know. And we may wonder, is the next, whatever is happening, is the next thing going to be another closed door? But when we think about it, why should God do anything before the last minute? That's what Boaz would say to us. Boaz just kept on doing what he should do no matter how many doors were shut. And because he kept on doing what he should do, he was there when the last minute came. At the same time, we have to, as we observe this, we have to say to ourselves how fragile the whole thing is. Isn't it? The whole thing is fragile. It all depends on the whim of this unnamed redeemer. And when we look at God's kingdom, it's usually fragile. In many parts of the world today, perhaps even in our own country, from our perspective, we're a few steps away from extinction. But what matters is the God of the last minute, isn't it? And Boaz would tell us that. And in reality, when it comes down to it, when is a church anything else but fragile? It's always fragile. Those who tell us it was strong in the past, That's nostalgia. It might have been numerically bigger. But that doesn't mean it was stronger. Where is our strength? 
whether we've got 10 people or 1,000 people. Where is our strength? It's in God. God alone. We can never put it somewhere else. So Boaz says to us, and he's not the only one in the Bible, he's a God of the last minute. Let us look at three things. Significance of signs. And also the importance of giving blessings. And then answered prayer. What a strange custom. Taking off your sandal and giving it to you. Giving it to the person who is willing to take on this field. Of course, the sign was visible. Everybody could see it. All the crowd that were gathered round there, when they saw this um, unnamed man taking off his sandal, they knew what was happening. They didn't say to one another, look, he's taking off his sandal. They would never have said that, would they? But they'd have said, look, he's, he's not taking the field. It was a sign of a transaction having taken place. And while they might have used the words, he's taken off his sandal, they meant he's not going to purchase the field. The importance of signs. You know, the history of Israel is full of signs. There's the circumcision, there's the Passover, there's all the feasts, there's all the other uh, requirements that were required of the people. And we may say to ourselves, what are all these things for? What's What's the book of Leviticus and... Exodus and Numbers, what are they all about? They're all about signs. Signs for people to look at and say, ah, that's that's happening, it's happening again. And again. And again. Right down their centuries. This particular sign had uh, passed away by the time this book was written, whoever wrote the book, because it says there in verse 7, it was a custom in former times. So obviously some signs can pass away. We have signs. We know that, don't we? We have the sign of baptism. And we've got the sign of the Lord's Supper. And even as when this man took his sandal off, and everybody knew what was happening. So people should know what's happening when our signs take place. There were some other signs that, um, that God had not required that we used to do. We don't do them anymore, but we used to do them. And these signs are not required by God, well, they can be stopped. I mean, it used to be the custom, for example, that before anybody went into the pulpit, the Bible did. Didn't it? I mean, the, the beetle would walk into the pulpit with the Bible before anybody else did. And, of course, that was a sign. It was a sign that everybody's under the authority of God's word. But God had never said they had to do that, so we don't do it anymore, so and that's just the way things are. But with regard to baptism and the Lord's Supper, God has given them for us as signs. And they should be as clear to everyone as the taking off 
of this man's sandal was. There should be no dubiety about what has been shown. So I just want to mention three things about each of them very, very quickly. Because all of us, I'm sure, have seen them. And ask yourself at this moment, if someone had said to you, what do these signs signify? What would you have said? In straightforward, say, bullet points. If someone said to you, give me three bullet points about why you put some water on that baby's head. Or give me three bullet points as to why you take a piece of bread and a sip of wine. Because they are signs. We know that. They are signs and seals. So as signs, they're meant to be read. I mean, <coughs> you go down the A9 or any other road in the country, and they're signs. And we may say, well, I know what that sign's pointing to. I don't need to look at it. Well, no doubt that's true. But the signs are still there for a reason. They give direction. So baptism, what's it a sign of? Well, it's just three bullet points, maybe. It's how you get into the visible church. There's no other way. I mean, we, there could be the, whoever the biggest sinner in Inverness is. And of course, when we say something like that, we should say, whoever the biggest sinner in Inverness is apart from me. But when, if the biggest sinner in Inverness, whoever that is, got converted today, he couldn't take the Lord's Supper unless he's baptized. He's not in the visible church until he's baptized. And that's a sign. It's a sign you have to join something. A very important sign. I think in our heritage, we've demeaned this sign. And we have elevated the other one. But we have no right to demean it. Baptism is the act that separates. I mean, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, for some reason, suffered lots of temptations. And the answer he gave to his temptations was, I'm a baptized man. In other words, I belong to another kingdom. And that's what baptism says. Bullet point number one. Entrance into the visible church. Number two. It points to cleansing. That's the whole point of water. The point of baptism is not the nice cup in which the water is in. The point of baptism is the water. And the water signifies cleansing from sin. Why does a child, or an adult for that matter, get baptism? It's because inwardly they are spiritually unclean. And therefore, they need to be cleansed. Not by the act of baptism. It's only a sign pointing to something that God can do. He can cleanse sinners by the blood of Christ. And the third thing that baptism says is, God says in baptism, and of course it is a sign of what God says, isn't it? 
God says in baptism, come and get to know me. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not a mantra. It's an invitation, come and get to know me. Know me as the Father, know the Son as the Son, and know the Spirit as the Spirit. Signs. What's the Christian life all about? Well, primarily, it's to know God. And if we don't get to know God, all the rest doesn't really make it mean anything. That's baptism. A very important sign. Never to be diminished. We should never call it watering the baby's head. Not borders on blasphemy. Then the Lord's Supper. Another sign. Three things about it. What does it tell us? It tells us our souls need food. And the food that our souls need is the death and resurrection of Christ. Sure, we all love to get something unusual, expensive, at a special occasion, a good meal. Well, the special occasion at which we get the best meal possible is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is not there for me to think about myself. The Lord's Supper is there to feed on Christ. But in the same way as I have to get my knife and fork or spoon and use it to put physical food into my mouth, I have to take my faculties and use them to think of Jesus. If I make my mind blank, it will be blank. If I wait for God to say something, I may have to wait. We have to think about Jesus. It's also a family. The Lord's Supper is not a one-to-one -one with Jesus. It's a gathering of God's people. We don't just look in and we don't just look up, but we look around. Here's my family. Forever and ever. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus stressed the Lord's Supper Remember me. It's all about him. And we shouldn't go to it saying, I wonder what so-and-so is thinking about me. Because if so-and-so is doing it rightly, she won't be thinking about you. Or he won't be thinking about you. Sign. It should be as clear as this man waving a sandal about. Everybody got the point. And secondly, blessing. There in verses 11 and 12. Now the important thing about a blessing is, <clears throat> is you have to use your imagination. And you have to find the biggest thing possible and include it in your blessing. I mean, God did that, didn't he? 
When God was speaking to Abraham about his, how many descendants he was going to have, I mean, God shows the biggest things possible as far as numbers are concerned. He just said to them, said to Abraham, your descendants will be like the sand of the seashore, and they'll be like the stars of the sky. There's no bigger way of saying about numbers, is there, of things. How many grains of sand are there? Go home today and type into Google. How many grains of sand are there? Won't be able to tell you. At the same time, ask it, how many stars are there? Won't be able to tell you. And we shouldn't be surprised when we are told in Revelation chapter 7 that the number of the redeemed is a number that no one can count. Which I think is telling us that even in heaven they don't have a focus on numbers. It's just a number that no one can count. So God chooses the big thing possible. And here, that's what these elders and others at the city gate do when they say to Boaz. And they just think of what God has done for them. And they go way back to Jacob. And there he is. Initially he hasn't got a wife. Then he's got two, uh, Rachel and Leah. And every person that is in the crowd that day, standing around Boaz, is only there because of what God did through Rachel and Leah. Who were Rachel and Leah? Just two sisters from a small village in the Middle East. But what did God do with them? He did so much that they became an example of what to say in blessing people. And the same as Perez and Tamar. It's not a nice story to read about Tamar. But anyway, Perez, he, was, he became part of the, the line, a line that went to Jesus. But anyway, they're all part of the area of Judah here. And even as everyone in that crowd was connected to Rachel and Leah, so they were all connected to Perez. not just a God of the last minute, he's a God of the small beginnings. We can never judge anything by its size. And the reason why we can't judge it by its size is because we don't know what God's going to do with it. Who would have said about Perez that the story of his descendants will last forever? And in the middle of the blessing, they say to Boaz, you're to live worthily. They're not saying that because they imagine he might not live worthily, of course. That would be a wrong deduction to me. But they are encouraging him. Keep on doing what you're doing. You said that to anybody this week? Encourage a Christian to keep on doing what they're doing? And the reason why they said it, of course, to Boaz is because they were saying, we need people like you in our community. 
all part of the blessing they're giving. You know, I can pray for somebody, but that's not the same as blessing. I don't bless someone unless I verbalize it, unless I say it. So, have we we blessed anyone this week? And just said to them, our God knows what to do. Blessing is very important. Peter encouraged or commanded his readers to say, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. There's a process. Bless, and people get a blessing. Because a blessing is done in the name of God. It's not like when we meet somebody and say to them, Merry Christmas. I mean, that's not a blessing. A blessing is a very serious statement. Almost invoking the name of God into the situation. So I ask myself, as I ask you, have you blessed someone this past week? It's very important. And then briefly the answered prayer. Well, this prayer that's contained in this blessing, I mean, It's likely, although I don't know, but it's likely that these people saying the blessing just had a couple of generations in mind. They're basically saying to him, we hope Ruth has a son and the inheritance can carry on. But look at the way God answered the prayer, the blessing. Well, Obed... Who's he? He's the grandfather of David. He's not just the one who's going to get Naomi's field. He's the start almost of the royal line. Not quite, but he's just a couple of generations off it. But God's got this in mind. Um, Obed's grandson... It's going to be the king after my own heart. You know, and there's something quite intriguing about the word Obed. Because the name Obed means servant. And people gave names for reasons in biblical times. And they wanted him to be a servant. Servant of who? A servant of God. So it's answered at that level, far higher than these folk could imagine. If somebody had said to Boaz, I think your great-grandson is going to be a king. He'd have said, don't be ridiculous. Israel doesn't have kings. They didn't have kings then. But God... He had his own plan. And that was part one level of it. Yeah, Ruth and Boaz would have a son. Another level of it was God was thinking of the, how Israel as a nation would develop. And even further ahead than that, he's preparing the line of the Messiah. 
You mean Boaz and Ruth, they have, they have no idea about this. When Ruth said to Naomi, your God shall be my God, she really had no idea what she was saying. That way down the line, one of her descendants would be her God. So prayer. When Paul says in his benediction or his doxology that we are approaching a God who can do more than we can ask or imagine. It's true. We pray, we pray for so-and-so. And it's good to pray for so-and-so. But we have no idea what's going to happen to so-and-so's great-grandson. Or further down the line. But God has got plans. So prayer. And even this genealogy of Jesus. So you have here at the end, genealogy of, extends to Jesus. There's wonderful secrets in it. I mean, Salmon, Boaz's dad. Who did he marry? Who does Salmon marry? He married Rahab. Rahab from Jericho. So, Boaz is Salmon's son Rahab's son when that's your parents it's not too surprising that Boaz would marry a Moabite is it That's the way God works. Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar's in it. The mother of Perez. And Ruth is in it. The Moabite. The Savior's family tree. Just a few points as we close. Three, three points. Competing redeemers. There's Boaz and the unnamed man. Competing redeemers. There's always competing redeemers. And even right now there's there's Jesus. And there's whoever is competing with him. Or whatever is competing with him. I mean, that's the choice that comes to us, isn't it? It's Jesus or someone else. Or Jesus or something else. But Ruth could only have one redeemer. She couldn't have two. And of the two competing redeemers that were here in this chapter, there was only one that was devoted to her. The other one couldn't care less. And it's often the same with any competitors that are to Jesus. He's the one that's devoted. And the others. Whether it's a whoever or a whatever. They shed no tears when a person trusts in Jesus. So 
Who's your Redeemer? Jesus is like Boaz. Only Boaz could move, remove the obstacles. And the same goes for us. Only Jesus can remove the obstacles. So who's your Redeemer? Of course, you have to be like Ruth and go and ask him to be the Redeemer. Second lesson from this is how to get, how to be known as the one with no name. Just behave like the alternative redeemer. Your name's not worth recording, is what this thing says, isn't it? Humanly speaking, this man had a chance to do something for God. But he didn't. And therefore his name is, all he is is a man with no name. And that's kind of sad. And the last thing to learn from the book is providence. Take poor Naomi. Call me Mara. What a strange statement for a person of faith. What was she saying when she said that? She was saying, I'm judging things by providence and not by the God of providence. It's all come to an end. We went off to Moab, and that was a big mistake. And now I've come back empty, nothing. Just call me Mara. One person that didn't call her Mara was God himself. I got plans for you, plans for good and not of evil. And there she is at the end of this, the God of the last opportunity, as it were. Well, there's Naomi, and she's so happy. And it's intriguing, it's not Boaz that makes her happy. It's Obed. That could indicate, of course, that Boaz was an old man and he had died. But whatever, her self-assessment was totally wrong. Call me Mara, bitter. And sometimes we do get bitter things. But Naomi says to us, bitter things don't define us. God can do great things. What about Ruth? If we had seen Ruth as a wee girl, if we had stood at the border of Moab, and saw her playing somewhere, we would say, well, what kind of future has she got? God had a great plan for her. And she embraced it with all her heart. Even when Naomi said to her, go back, 
He didn't listen to such advice. What about Boaz? I mean, the book talks about Naomi's inheritance. But what about Boaz's inheritance? Who's going to get his property? He's now an old man. But Boaz, it just looks, and this is perhaps a guess, but he just looks as if he's waiting for God to come at the right time. And Boaz, well, he, he sorted out his own inheritance and Naomi's inheritance at the same time. And the last one is Orpha. Poor Orpha. She came to a crossroads in life and kissed the ones that were traveling to heaven and went in a different direction. How sad. We have to watch crossroads, you know. A wrong choice could take us far away. Orpha? Well, in all probability, she's not with Ruth today. It all happened at a crossroads. We have to make the right choice. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks.